0: It lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses and therefore themselves and everyone around them through his transformational training program. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com.
1: G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and on this week's podcast I have a special guest, a young lady named Stevie Delahunt and I met Stevie at the Western States Horse Expo in Sacramento in last year, I believe it was, and she came up to the booth and had a chat and her and her husband, and the question she asked made me realize she's a pretty deep thinker, but then I, I got to know a little bit more about her in the in the ensuing year and found out that she's a full-on adventurist. She has raced the, the Mongol Derby, which is a thousand kilometer horse race across the the steppes of mongolia and she's also raced the gaucho derby which is 450 kilometers over some pretty rough terrain in patagonia which i believe is in part of argentina maybe part of chile i'm not sure but down there in south america and it's pretty rough going and she's she has um she's raced both of those races and she's also helped um, facilitate those races, and she also actually trains people to get ready for those races. So she's quite quite an adventurer. And uh, yeah, my conversation with her, she just kind of blew me away. She's a very very special person, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Stevie Delahunt, welcome to the Journey on Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: I'm excited to to have you. You're a bit of a you're a podcast listener, aren't you? You've heard. A number of the podcasts,
2: very much so. I listened to like three or four on my drive over to my friends to record this this morning, <laughs> so I feel like I'm amongst stars.
1: <laughs> awesome. Who, who'd you listen to this morning?
2: Um, Emily Newman and Kansas, and I was re-listening to both of them actually because I really enjoyed those.
1: Yeah, Emily was amazing, and yeah, Kansas is amazing too. Okay, but this this one is all about Stevie Delahunt. You you know what? You're quite the adventurer. Why don't you? Why don't you, um, you've, done the, you've done the Mongol Derby and the Gaucho Derby, haven't you?
2: I have, yeah, and uh, raced the Wild Coast, which is in South Africa, and then another of the adventurous races, which is the Cracking Cup, a sailing race in Tanzania.
1: Oh, really? We, okay, we're going to get to all the stories from those here in a minute. Um, but tell us, what exactly uh, do you do?
2: Um, sure. I actually have to take notes on what I do because I can never answer this question easily. Um, so I'll flip through that. Um, I you say- know, when
1: someone has to take notes on what they do to be on the podcast, they're the perfect podcast guest because it's not like <laughs> a, accountant, plumber, whatever. Like, yeah, this is going to be cool. Far away. Sorry for interrupting.
2: No, no, not at all. Story of my life. I mean, I've done everything from being a professional cake, wedding cake, Maker. Um, that's what I was doing when I did my first race, the Mongol Derby. But um, yeah, I just had really random jobs. So I have to have notes on what I do. So what I do right now is I'm a farrier. Um, I'm a riding instructor for beginning riders and advanced riders, which is, you know, the same thing, doing the basics. Um, I'm a fitness coach, um, and then I'm an, an interviewer and an event manager for the Gaucho and Mongol Derbies, which is run by the company, The Adventurous. And I'm also, um, an animal communicator.
1: Really? I did not know that last bit about you.
2: Horse. Let me be specific. Horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Wowzers. That's, that is cool. So, Let's go to the adventurous stuff. How did you? You also do you doing do endurance races too, don't you?
2: I do. Yeah, I do endurance racing as well. Um, yeah, and that's how I help prepare riders for the Gaucho and Mongol Derbies. But we'll we'll get to that part too.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So the the Mongol Derby, I know a little bit about that because I've been in Mongolia and I had Chloe Phillips Harris on the podcast who has done the Mongol Derby and has crewed the Mongol Derby a few times. So I know that's a thousand kilometers of riding these wild little Mongolian horses across the, across the steppe. What is involved in the Gaucho Derby and where is it?
2: Sure. So the Gaucho Derby is in Patagonia, which Patagonia technically is Chile and Argentina, um, but it's in the Argentinian side of Patagonia. Uh, The race runs around the towns of El Calafate and um, El Chaltan, That's where the finish line is it's 500 kilometers so it's shorter than the mongol derby um, but it's much more technical terrain so as far as days that it takes to complete it's about the same our winners do it in seven days just like the mongol derby and um, everyone has 10 days to actually complete it Uh, but that is a multi-horse race as well so both races are designed to be difficult on the rider and not on the horse so the rider goes through about 25 horses on the Mongol Derby and seven on the Gaucho Derby. Um, the Gaucho Derby is a much slower paced race and it's about surviving in the kind of the foothills of the Andes. So it's it's serious. Um, it's surviving and taking care of a horse um, over the terrain. And yeah, 500 kilometers, seven horses, seven days for a lot of people um, camping out, carrying all your own gear and being fully self-sustainable through those seven days, and trying to navigate as well, which is always an element on both races.
1: You know, I just had a little bit of a research on the Gaucho Derby before I got on here with you. And like the first four days before you even start is, is making sure people have survivalist skills
2: yeah so an interesting part of my job um i do the job along with um i have to mention him eric cooper is the wonderful person who helps put all this together and tom morgan who owns the company um, and then my husband bill and uh the three of us and sometimes tom as well i'll interview riders for both races and a big part of our job is double checking that a people have horsemanship in mind horse welfare is like the number one priority on our races Um, So interviewing them for that, but then also asking them if they have any camping skills and survival skills. And um, it's really, as you know, interesting just trying to get a sense of somebody over the phone or over an interview. So we do this. Um, But then kind of researching into that, asking them for videos of them riding, asking for their experience. And then um, we meet them in person. And sometimes that's wildly different than what we expected through the interview. Um, and we have four days to kind of double check that they're not going to die out there or warrant a helicopter ride in the middle of the race. So, yeah, four days of survival training, navigation training, um, and just general horsemanship and understanding the horses out there.
1: And what, what sort of people do you get on the, the Gaucho Derby?
2: So um we're really proud of the group that we had this year. We wanted an age range, we wanted real diversity. So we have a diversity in backgrounds. We have people that are polo riders, dressage, everything, um endurance, packing. So some people that seem like they've been doing this their whole life. And um the age range was awesome. We had 19 to 69, which was amazing. Um, and yeah, shout out to Pam Parner was 69, um, super inspirational woman, uh, endurance rider from America. And she smiled through the whole thing, which was so incredible to watch. She took it better than almost everyone else that was younger than her. She did fantastic. Um, so we were really proud of the, the amount of countries represented as well. We had 17 different countries represented, um, in 35 riders, which was fantastic, uh, just a huge range. And it was wild because everyone really got along. Like everyone got along. That was so fun. So there's that X factor when you're interviewing, like can they laugh in the face of high stress? <laughs> and a lot of them did. So that was great.
1: What's your part in the Gaucho Derby? What do you, you know, what exactly do you do?
2: I would say like throughout the whole thing, and this is totally the adventurous spirit of things, I would say, I don't know. <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, no, it's uh, event managing, which means that um, I'm making sure everything runs smoothly. Um, I personally do a lot in um, like the idea of morals and ethics and horse welfare within the company. So I'm trying to look out for the riders, but also um, look out for the horses, Like um, just making sure that they're taking care of. We have nine veterinarians um, in the Gaucho Derby and we have four medics. So that tells you where our priorities lie. Um, So yeah, horse welfare was in great place because we had wonderful veterinarians that have worked the Mongol Derby and understand our priorities as a company. Um, A lot of what I ended up helping with as well was logistics. Um, So these horse stations um, where people change horses in the race are extremely remote, and that meant herding horses in. So, crewing was terrible. At times I had to, I had to um, move, help move horses over mountain ranges. So it was like a dude ranch vacation in some some moments. And then when the horses were running away, and we thought we were going to lose them before they made it to the vet check, then it didn't feel like a vacation. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're moving horses into place. And herding them into place, which is absolutely wild, like the most wild terrain out there um, that you would never, never think a horse could go over. And we were full gallop herding them into into place to be ready for the riders. Um, So, yeah, the logistics of this race is mind boggling and that it comes together is mind boggling. And I I guess I was a part of that. Um, I'm not sure how everything happened. But, yeah, you're you're at you're at the checks, you're making sure riders are taking care of times when they come in. We had a race hold at one of the vet checks this year that I was um, sort of managing. And I was just being really adamant that exactly when a rider crossed a line at a certain time, that was their time in and then, you know, calculating their time out so that it was fair. Um, yeah, just being in charge of that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can't always make everyone happy in the race either. And having to manage people's expectations and and uh, manage crew and yeah it was it was a wild experience and um yeah I guess logistics is the bottom line of what we do.
1: Well yeah it's logistics but you're not sitting in the office on a computer it sounds like you basically rode the gaucho derby before the gaucho derby actually happened.
2: Yeah Eric so Eric who I work with actually did go out and ride the entire thing to map it um and I rode the inaugural race, which didn't run entirely, um, because we had some unexpected weather that no one knew would be an element in the race the year I did it. And, um, so four people were helicoptered out with hypothermia. Um, so that year the race didn't run super smoothly. <laughs> um, so I'd ridden part of it and I knew it to a degree and yeah, we definitely got to ride between stations. I was also driven between bet checks at points, um, and yeah, this is the fun part of what we get to do. The rest of the year, we are actually in an office. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork for, for every minute of fun. There's two minutes of paperwork with horses, it seems like. I bet. And, uh, yeah, this is the, the
1: fun part. So are you saying the same company runs the Gaucho Derby and the Mongol Derby?
2: That's correct. I did not yeah. know that. Yep, I thought the they, I thought they were to-
1: totally different things. And so did you – what? was the start of it for you did you start out with the adventurous or did you start out riding the mongol derby and that's how you met them
2: so this is the, the i'll give you a cool long version story of, my life of how i got entangled with the adventurous please do <laughs> cool it's um it's i've actually just told this story quite a lot because a lot of people ask me how i met my husband which is like while i was doing the race a lot of the riders were asking and um since we worked together and all that and it's actually a story through the adventurous um So in 2014, uh, like I think most people who want to enter this kind of race, I was on a, unbeknownst to me, I didn't think I was spiritual at all, but I was actually on a spiritual journey. Um, And side note, that's what I love about being involved in these races. I think all these riders are on their own spiritual journey to horses and with horses and they don't realize it yet, which is really cool to be a part of. Um, So yeah, I was in, in a kind of lost place. And I felt I had something to prove at that time um, and wanted to do the Mongol Derby. So 2014, or I was supposed to do it 2013, couldn't come up with the money, which is a huge barrier to a lot of people, but also kind of cool, teaches you to hustle. If you really want something, you can get it done. Um, Raised enough money, um, went and rode it in 2014. And um, my husband was crewing it he had raced in 2013 and was crewing the 2014 Derby and at the end we kind of connected loosely and luckily we didn't get together then cause we weren't ready to meet each other. Um, but did the Mongol Derby, um, loved the race, had, um, had a crazy year working in Australia afterwards. Cause I was so lost. I went out and worked on a horse station in the Pilbara for a year. Um, which was really cool. That's actually how I learned to start horses. I started, I think at least 20 horses that year. Um, and following Guy McLean, um, they gave me, I showed up at this ranch and they gave me a video and it was a Guy McLean video and they said, please start our horses this way. And I said, sure. And it was the most easy. I never got bucked off, never had one horse to make a fuss. It was amazing introduction to natural horsemanship. Um, I was also, I'd gone out there after the Mongol Derby, um, had failed a relationship. So I was kind of in a really depressed state and I found there's like a lot of magic in, um, being, I get, I, it was like a false sense of peace. I was pretty depressed and the horses could sort of sense that about me and I connected in a really deep way because I had no fear. No fear, because I didn't care what happened to me, which is not a great, not a suggested way to approach horsemanship, but it caught me a lot um, getting to start those horses. I worked with horses basically from sunrise to sunset with no one, no interaction. Um, For those of you who don't know, the Pilbara is a very remote area in in Australia, um, like the northwestern corner of Australia. And we were three and a half hours from the closest anybody, and I lived on the station with, I think, like... 15 other people maximum. And I got to be the horse person out there, which was really cool. Um, so that was a little interim of my life. Lost myself, found myself out there. The cool. Can yeah, I just interrupt for a
1: second? So the Pilbara, so it's the top left, part of the sure. top left-hand corner of Australia. But they say the Pilbara, the the rock in the Pilbara is not the same as anywhere else in Australia. And they think it was actually a separate thing that initially back in the day. But there are Interesting fact, in the rock in the Pilbara, there are no fossils. They cannot find fossils in the rock in the Pilbara. And the story I read was it's basically older than life itself.
2: Wow. Um, I know the station I worked on, it's now called Outback Beef, but it was called Yari Station at the time. And I know Yari had a reference to the rock. So that that sounds accurate. Mm. Um, it, was, it was insanely beautiful and remote and wonderful kind of, has that same feel as Patagonia. Patagonia also has this feeling of, um, this desolate time before humans. Like I go back, my husband's South African actually, and we go back to South Africa frequently and there's a whole different feeling there. I've heard you mention it on the show and it's totally right. Everything wakes up in the morning knowing that it might be its last day on earth. And I've experienced that. I lived there for a year as well. It's, um, so actually, why we live in America, it's beautiful in South Africa, but it's dangerous. Um, and I think if my husband's a whole lot tougher than me because he grew up there, uh, it's something I admire for sure. But um yeah, the the Pelborough is a wonderful, wonderful place to find yourself. And then I came home back to America and um went through some health issues and in the middle of it got invited to come help train horses for a new horse race that was going to be in South Africa um, called Race the Wild Coast. And um, this kind of started my spiritual journey. I went to go for a run uh, a couple hours before I left for my flight to uh, South Africa to help train horses for the race. And um, I thought to the universe, I was kind of like, if there's fate, show me show me that there's such thing as fate show me where my path is supposed to go and went for the run came back and i had an email and it said um and by the way this i was kind of bummed out that i didn't have the money to race this race that i was going to just be crewing and helping train the horses i felt super privileged and lucky to be able to do that but a ton of my friends that had done the 2014 mongol derby with me were actually racing and i was kind of bummed i wasn't going to get to race with them Um, and the email said, Hey, we talked about it. And if your doctors clear you to, to race, we would, we would love for you to ride it and just, um, hold the camera. Like they had a couple of cameras they needed to strap to somebody. And, um, I was like, Oh, heck yeah. So messaged them back. Yeah, absolutely. I'll do this. Uh, scrambled to get some gear, changed my gear out and jumped on the plane. And by the time I had landed, which is a long flight. Um, There was another email and it was like, hey, we talked about it. And uh, if you come ahead three weeks early and get to know the horses, that's an unfair advantage. So is there someone you could stay with in South Africa um, in the meantime before the race starts? And I was like, oh, I don't know that many people in South Africa. Um, But I thought back to my 2014 Mongol Derby experience and there had been that guy, Dylan, um, who had uh, crewed on the race. And he seemed kind of like a a real ladies man. So I was like, I don't know, it might be (laughs) uh, might might be complicated. Let me try this other um, this other person I know who's a veterinarian um, from the race. And I I messaged her and she was like, oh, I'm actually working in Dubai. I'm not in South Africa. So I messaged Dylan and uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, my future husband and asked if I could come stay with him out of nowhere for three weeks and train, um, and ride horses. And he was doing horses in film at the time running a company. And he was like, yeah, we have horses and we actually need someone to help us on a couple films. Would love to have you. And I, I was like, that sounds great. Um, so I booked flights across from Johannesburg to Cape town, uh, stayed with him for three weeks. And by week two, uh, well, week one we had bonded over the fact that we would never get married, and um, that we were very atheist and unspiritual. And by second week, we believed in fate. And he said, "I'm going to marry you," and I said, "Yeah, yeah." So that was that. And uh, I went and did the race and yeah. <laughs> did race the Wild Coast. Stop!
1: Stop! <laughs> don't get Don't get too far ahead. Okay. This, okay. This is This is This is pretty cool. <laughs> so I almost need to talk to Dylan about this. So what did I wanna know, did Dylan did yeah. Dylan manifest you too? Like did he have
2: did I don't know. Did he have something out there? We were meant to meet, I think
1: <laughs> you know, like you, you guys know. you guys um, cannot you know, I can see uh Stevie as we're talking here and when I was reading something about I might have been Mm, I don't know. Maybe it's something on your Facebook about the the Gaucho Derby, something or other, but somewhere I read that you are nicknamed Adventure Barbie. Is that right? <laughs>
2: yeah. That's okay. Right.
1: So what I'm getting at here is Stevie looks like a Barbie doll. She's beautiful, blonde hair, petite features, looks like a Barbie doll. And here's this dude in South Africa, and all of a sudden, this beautiful blonde girl he met couple of years before calls up and says, Can I stay with you for three weeks? It's like, you know, that just doesn't happen. He there had to be some <laughs> sort of Dylan putting it out there to the universe that I need Adventure Barbie to show up and want to stay with me for three weeks.
2: Yeah, you're gonna have to see my husband. I think he's um he's a pretty handsome man. Oh, I've met, so I've, he, I've, <laughs> he did well with I've the ladies, met him so I've <laughs> met him <laughs>
1: last year at the Horse Expo.
2: That's right. Yes. You have met him. (laughs) Yeah. And the accent, I mean, you know, worked, worked both Mm. ways. So, um, yeah, I think maybe he was manifesting. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, so yeah. And that's like, you, you have the questions at the end. So I'll get, I'll get into this, uh, um, about where he led me on a spiritual path, but as far as this storyline going along with, um, how I'm involved in the adventurous, I'll, I'll carry on with that as in, um, yeah, so did the race well yeah, did race the Wild Coast. Um and, and
1: how long how and long then, is it how long is um, that race?
2: Yeah, so that's four or three hundred and fifty kilometers and um it's three three to four days, uh, which it, it's super difficult though, because you're doing there's twenty-three major river cross, crossings in that. And so that was actually the reason that they had asked me to come and help train horses. A they were being nice, they knew I wasn't medically super well and they didn't probably need an american trainer to come help with the horses but they a very armitage who runs the race was being very sweet and offered me a place um to come help but the horses had to do river cross swims and some of them don't know how to do that yet and i actually worked with the horses in the pilbara to cross rivers and he had seen footage from that and knew that i could get a horse to swim across a river um so that race has 23 river crossings. You get super wet and it's kind of humid, tropical feeling on that coast, um, on the wild coast there. And you, you get some really interesting rubs on your body. Uh, you can't really sustain longer than four days probably without having some serious uh, skin issues, I think. Um, but yeah, it's a difficult and stunningly beautiful race. Where well. is it? That is, it's near Durban. It's okay. the okay. largest city nearby. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so it's on that coast there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, did did that race, met Dylan, um, flew back home after the race shortly to get some stuff in order, had a friend take the two horses that I had at the time. Um, we made a trade. She moved them from where I'd been living in Michigan out to California Um, and they stayed with her she rode my mare um, she was a mongol derby veteran from my year as well and she rode my mare in tevis in exchange for me uh, or exchange for looking after them for me for a year i went back to south africa and helped um, my husband with his company um, doing film horses which was amazing and really cool i i loved listening to ben atkinson actually so it reminded me of some stuff that my husband did with the horses in film. Um, And then we stayed in South Africa for a year, realized we wouldn't be able to stay there permanently. Um, South Africa doesn't want me to live there. It's easier for Dylan to come over. And and you know how not easy getting citizenship is in America. It was much easier for him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And congratulations, by the way. It's such a such a headache. Um, so amazing that you got your citizenship. Congrats. And Dylan and I are working on that. Um, well, the
1: citizenship actually was, was easy. The, The whole, the green card thing back at the time was, was, uh, a lot harder. The citizenship thing, but, you know, I'd been here for 30 years. Uh, the citizenship thing was, was relatively easy.
2: Okay, good. That's what we have lo- to look forward to. The green card was not easy. <laughs> no,
1: no, I think and it's. And yeah, especially I, I, when
2: you don't have money.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, back when I got my green card, it was called the INS, which is Immigration Naturalization Service. Now it falls under the Department of Homeland Security. And, and the world has changed a bit. But when I went in for my interview for my citizenship, I was expecting some hard nosed someone trying to trick me into getting it wrong or whatever. And it was, it was almost total opposite this lady was lovely and, you know, asked the question, you know, like it was, I walked out of there, I was, I was actually kind of shocked. So it's, it, I don't know how long ago you got yeah. your green card, but, but how long, when did you get your green card?
2: Um, I think we're going on a year and a half, two years now. Oh,
1: okay. So um, okay. yeah, it was yeah.
2: actually right before the pandemic.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. So no, you've, you've dealt with the, oh. the Department of Homeland Security. So but anyway, I found my experience 30 years, Later, quite a bit different. It was probably actually it's it's ten years later because I my green card expired when we moved to Australia in two thousand six, so you know, I had to get it back when we came back in two thousand ten. But anyway, I, I felt my immigrant my you know um, citizenship experience was a lot easier than the other one. So hopefully, yours is too.
2: Oh, that's good. Yeah, we actually to to say when we've had face to face interactions trying to. Um, or with everything, it's been really great. Like we came in with a big stack of photos to prove that we were married and actually a couple. And the guy's like, I get it. Like I've seen you guys together. I get it. You're a couple. And he was really nice and it was way easier than we expected. We thought there'd be all these trick difficult questions and there wasn't. It was, it was nice. Um, so yeah. Uh, where, where were we in the,
1: You've gone back to South Africa, but then you, Dylan you, and myself. you've you decided that you can't live in South Africa. It's easy if Dylan comes over here.
2: Yeah, so we we came back over here. Um, Dylan, and Dylan at the time was working for the Adventurers. He had been crew for the Mongol Derby. And then also, because he had worked and lived in Tanzania part-time, he had pitched um, a race idea to the Adventurers while he was working for them to race these little fishing boats that are charitably called boats. Let's put it that way. It's called an Engolawa. And it is a hollowed out mango tree of about thirty feet um so like they range in size about uh six meters right six yeah large a large mango tree that's hollowed out has two outriggers on the side and basically like a bedsheet for a sail and um the adventurists pride themselves on um their race formula, which is beautiful locations that are remote. Um, antiquated mode of transportation that has to be a bit laughable besides the horses, I guess that's not quite a laughable mode of transport Um, and make navigation and adventure a massive part of it. Um, So the, the race that Dylan pitched to them had the perfect recipe. They said, great, let's put people on these fishing boats and make them race them down the coast to Tanzania. So Dylan was helping run this race. They had done about six editions when I came on and I, I originally crewed that race with him. Um, and that was, that was a wild experience, uh, cause the sea is not something to be messed with. And I'd grown up sailing a tiny bit with my dad. Um, and so that I thought <laughs> we were trying to help get this race to take off cause we had, um, a decent amount of entries, but we never filled it. And then, um, I said, Hey, to get a better understanding of, of how this race could be better. Why don't I actually compete in it? Um, so we understand that side of it because, of course, Dylan being race organizer couldn't actually compete. It would be unfair, but I'm a terrible sailor, so it wouldn't be unfair if I did it. So I joined a team and <laughs> I raced the Kraken Cup. Um, that was in 2019. Like the in Kraken January. Cup? Yeah, January of 2019. The Kraken Cup. Like the Kraken? It was in, called the Ingalawa.
1: Like the Kraken in yeah. parts of the Caribbean? <laughs>
2: Yes, okay. like the Kraken and Pirates of the Caribbean, and also for Kraken rum, uh, there's a lot of alcohol consumed on this race. <laughs> um, but they they had previously called it the Angolawa Cup, but Angolawa is spelled I think it's N G A W A L A. So when people look at Angolawa, it's not it doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, so they re rechristened it uh, the Kraken Cup. By the time I raced it, um, I did that. It's the most difficult thing i would ever done. I never thought about quitting quitting during the Gaucho or Mongol Derby races, but I thought three or four times about quitting during the cracking cup. Um, But it was an amazing experience as well. Uh, My job on the boat, because I wasn't good enough to skipper or navigate, I didn't want to do any of the navigation, (laughs) was to run back and forth on the outriggers to balance the boat. Um, and subsequently it taught me to be a better rider when I was training for this race. So, uh, running back and forth on the boat, balancing the outriggers so that the boat doesn't tip over in the slightest bit of wind with my job. So I got a balance board and started balance board or doing balance board practice, like doing yoga on a balance board, doing weights on a balance board, just to prep for this race and something wild happened. I would ride and my riding improved immensely and um now I've actually incorporated balance board work into how I train Mongol and gaucho derby riders. Uh it's life changing and endurance riders. It's it's great for anyone. But yeah I started to learn about balance and also when I was out on that race I had just amazing um flow state experiences. Uh, being out there with the sea and being on that boat and that feeling of insignificance and just, just a wild, wild experience and not to go off too much in a tangent again there. I went and we were having a wild conversation about um, serendipity and fate. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I believe in it. I think maybe Dylan's the only um, example I have of fate. And as I said that this was, Uh, I think like day three of the race. So you're kind of habituated into um, the, how scary the ocean is. Like your body just gives up. The nervous system just is done. You're like, you're, you're at peace with where you're at. Oh, so we're in like a light storm at the time as we're having this casual conversation about fate. And there's like 10 foot swells and five foot waves. So you're, you're, yeah. Lots of wind. It's we're and we're wildly off course. We don't know it, but we're like two miles from where we're supposed to be. Um, but we are at actually exactly where we should have been, because I look out and I'm we've been seeing pieces of a boat. It looked like there'd been a wreck, um, like coconuts floating in the water and things. And I looked up and I was like, I think those are people. And we, we all looked and there were sure enough, there were three guys um hanging on to um a little piece of wood. I, I can't remember what it actually was, but it was a piece of the ship we found out later. Um so we we got eyes on them, we got closer, we 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 realized it was a situation that these guys were out there and needed to be rescued. We had our tiny boat and uh Of course, I I can rope and everyone's like, oh, you're the you're the person that should throw this rope because you can rope cattle off your horse. And they hand me the rope as we're coming up to these guys. Um, We're doing this like light rescue. We think they probably just recently shipwrecked. And um, I don't know, I guess we didn't realize how serious the situation was yet. And um, I went to go throw this rope and we're in these big swells and the sail goes up and I wind up. And I look at them and I throw, and these three eyes, desperate, or three sets of eyes, desperate eyes are following my hand. And the sail goes up, and then uh, the wave and the swell go down, and the sail comes down, and my rope hits the sail and drops completely incompetently into the water. (laughs) And the look of desperation on these people's faces was, I I felt like such a failure at that moment. Um, And again, fate. We realized later uh, that these guys had been um, out floating for about 48 hours, so they were really desperate. So they would have climbed onto the boat, and our boat was already overburdened. We had four people, and we should have had three, and all of our gear. And we probably would have sank our boat if they had come on board. Uh, We realized this later, so it was good. Fate intervened there with the sail and my terrible throwing skills. And um, we hit SOS right away. We had um, these awesome uh, in-reach Garmin trackers set up. And uh, within 15 minutes, a support boat was there, picked them up. We carried on our merry way. Um, and later that night, when we reconvened on one of the islands where we were meant to camp, we got the full story. Because, of course, we can also communicate with these guys. We didn't speak Swahili fluently enough to have any form of communication with them, uh, we found out that it wasn't just like a recent shipwreck that they had been in fact floating for 48 hours, um, and without water, some barracudas were nibbling on them and that eight other people had died. They were the only, uh, shipwreck survivors out there. So, uh, if we, we then renamed our boat to serendipity and, uh, it kind of made me stop questioning if there was such thing as fate in the universe, because thank goodness that we were these people out there with an SOS button that could actually do something and that we were two miles wildly off course. It was a pretty amazing experience and pretty humbling as well. Like We paid to be out there and we were looked after and these guys were just trying to make a living and they got shipwrecked and almost died. And it was just it was a wild experience that I, I don't know. I don't even think about it that often, weirdly, but. When I do, it's it's a lot. I don't even, I don't even know. I was just in the right place at the right time, which was really cool. Um, so that was my take. Big takeaways from cracking cup experience. And um, you know that. Yeah, so I'd crewed that one.
1: <laughs> that's one of those. Yeah, go ahead. One of those experiences that I don't, I don't know. You know, like you said, you you kind of didn't believe in all this stuff. And it's one of those experiences that, that when you've had something like that, you, there's, there's no unseeing that, there's no going back from that. There's no saying, oh, that you know that didn't happen or whatever. I mean, it, and you have, I think, and you probably had quite a few of them, but you have enough of those things, and it immensely changes the way you view the world.
2: It does, and you know, like this, just recently in the last like five months. I've realized how dense and thick I am and how much the universe has been wrapping me over the head with things my whole life. And I'm just starting to put the pieces together. (laughs) And that's definitely one of them. It's like every time I ask the universe for a sign um, or I question fate, it is so clear. It is so clear. (laughs) I just can't believe I keep forgetting. And it's actually that, you just forget. You forget that it's so divine actually. But, um, yeah, I guess I I guess that's why I keep wanting to be woken up by these races and wanting to go remember what it is to really be alive. Um, And so, yeah, a couple of years later, uh, the adventurous who we work for and do these interviews for, um, they they classically, by the way, I love I love working for them. They're amazing. And classically, they hardly ever turn a profit. It's kind of a cool, endearing, but terrifying thing about them. Um, I love, I love Tom and Jen who run the company. They do it simply because they want people to have these experiences. Um, but we hadn't kind of hadn't, I don't know, I'm sure they'd be fine if I said this, but they hadn't paid us for a while. So they kind of helped give us part of our entry into the Goucher Derby. We said, instead of paying us, you can let us come ride the Goucher Derby and then we'll also have a better idea of what the race is like, so we, as as um, employ, uh, our employees of the or the adventurers, we got to ride the Gaucho Derby, and um, that race was pretty wild. It wasn't quite set up as well as it had been this year, uh, so we were told to look up the uh, weather for El Calafate, which is eight hours away from where the race is actually run. Uh, We didn't know we'd be in the mountains, so no one had, like, snow gear, and there was a flash snowstorm, and um, that was probably the closest I came to dying again. (laughs) I don't know. Um, We got stuck in a snowstorm where there were um, winds of about 60 to 100 mile an hour um, gusts and full snow we had been rained on for a day and then it turned to snow in the night so everything froze on top of that and we had to help get out some people um who weren't doing very well and were even less equipped than we were and uh, it resulted in eventually getting getting them air flighted out with a helicopter uh, and so that was kind of a not disastrous but a very adventurous race <laughs> our version of the goucher derby so um the The Tom and Jen then asked us to come on and help with the the next edition, and Eric, who had been there as well, our, our coworker uh he went back and redesigned the race route and did a little a few more navigation points and made it a little bit safer and you know this year was an amazing success, so that's kind of the long winded version of how I'm involved with the adventurous i i both I've been on both sides of it I get to be a client and I get to be um, helping run it. And it's both, they're both amazing experiences both ways. Um, this year, r- helping run was wild. It was a wild experience. And I'm so happy to have watched people go through um, an event that will stick with them for the rest of their lives. It's really cool to help manifest that.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, I wanted to just comment on. Not comment on something, but get people to understand. You were talking about entry fees and Indigo. So the, I think the the Mongol Derby's ten thousand dollar entry fee, isn't it?
2: Um, I only wrote down the stats for the Gaucho Derby for this interview, so the, but yeah, I think it's somewhere around there. I remember, it's around there.
1: I remember Chloe telling me that, and then the Gaucho Derby's fourteen and a half thousand, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so I think probably right now they're, they're similar and I think it's had to go up every year with each country's inflation. Like we try to keep it, you know, we're running this one in Argentina and the other one in Mongolia and um, prices rise and we're trying to pay everyone involved fairly. So, yeah, I think it's actually they're similar in entry fees. So $14,500 for each, I think.
1: And so, you know, like the Mongol Derby, the winner gets bragging rights and a cup of maize is it milk?
2: Arag. Yeah. Fermented horse milk. <laughs> Thank
1: you. I actually didn't mind the fermented horse milk and I didn't mind the fermented camel milk, but the fermented goat, the goat milk, I couldn't do the goat milk and the goat milk vodka. I mean the goat vodka. I was no. like licking a billy goat.
2: I can't do goat or lamb anymore from my experiences in Mongolia. And, um, You know, Dylan went and did horse selection for the Mongol Derby in 2014 and he was out there for three months and he actually had the wonderful experience of, um, like they would get there to go check out horses and make sure that they were fit enough and well enough. And, um, but they would get there and they would often, the families would be doing the regular things that they would be doing, like bringing in sheep or horses. And, uh, when he was there, they were gelding a lot of the horses and they, they just make a slit pull out the testicles, and they offered them to Dylan raw, bleeding, and he had to take a bite of those without vomiting. <laughs> and he says that he is done with Mongolian cuisine after that experience, but power to him. He was able to do it.
1: He had a bite and didn't gag. I don't know if I could do uh, that. He
2: said he gagged, but he didn't vomit. Oh,
1: okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure I could, I could do that bit. And so tell us about your um, no. Tell us about your experience with the the Mongol Derby. You know, we had Chloe on. You've, you know Chloe Phillips Harris, don't you?
2: I do. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah, so yeah, we've had I do know her. we've
1: had Chloe on here and tell us a lot of different adventure stories. But one was the Mongol Derby. How was how was your experience with the Mongol Derby?
2: Yeah. Um, so my experience was um, I was in a transition, like I had said. I was definitely looking for something, and um, I my Mongol Derby was about losing, uh, that competitive edge and actually feeling an experience for what it was. Um, and I helped myself out with that in that, um, I rode with somebody who had tried attempted in 2013 and hadn't completed and he was looking for someone that he was not a big horse person wildly enough. Um, back in 2013, they weren't filling up with entries. Um, it, by my year, 2014, I think they'd had like 400 people uh, vying for 45 spots. And that's about at least average stats. We have like 400 or more people um, wanting those 45 to 35 spots in these races now. Um, but back in 2013, he had gotten in. Um, he got through a couple days, uh, had terrible rubs, a lot of pain, realized he hadn't trained well and dropped out. Uh, so we got connected through, um, a girl named Devin who had done, has done the Mongol Derby three times. And she was like, I think you guys would be a good match. You guys should ride together. Um, and it was perfect because I focused on helping him train and worrying about him. So I didn't have to worry about myself. And I, it's wild because he knew me better than I knew me. We were in the middle of the Mongol Derby and he was like, are you really happy being a cake baker? That's what it was at the time. I was like, yeah, I love it. But it doesn't lend itself to doing horse activities on weekends. I'm always going to weddings. And he's like, I really see you as somebody who trains people to do these races. And he's like, I mean, you trained me. And I was like, nah, I'm done with horses. This is it. Like, this is my last hurrah doing the Mongol Derby. And man, was he right. He knew me. He saw who I was and and wild that that's what I do now. Um, But yeah, I, I helped him train for the Mongol Derby realized that helping people do amazing things is what my place in the world is. So, um, yeah, the Mongol Derby for me was so fun because I, I just, anytime I was worried, I would just focus on, I have to get my riding partner, Adam through this. I have to get Adam through this and I can't be afraid because then he might be afraid because he doesn't, he didn't, he was blissfully unaware of what horses could do. And he had like a deep wonderful inner peace um he's one of my best friends now um and this wonderful inner peace that animals just love and i don't think he realized our experience was really unique Um, i i was lucky enough to never come off i think chloe's actually the only other one that never got bucked off in the mongol derby and um both adam and i had the most placid well-behaved wonderful fun horses i think he came off twice but it was on the same horse and it was because it was stumbling through marmot holes was it because it was trying to buck him off? And we had a wonderful experience and um, just connected with the horses. And I think one of the coolest moments in the Derby for me was uh, there was a guy named Unan Byrne who helped run the race, um, a local Mongolian. And he came up to me. That's and they, big man, isn't it? Uh, the Mongolians love their horses to ha- Yeah. Sorry. What was that?
1: That's big man, isn't it? They call him big man?
2: I think so. Yeah, I think so. So you, Chloe's close with him, so you yes, know yeah, him that's big that way yeah, through yeah,
1: your yeah. I know the guy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um he he came up to me and as as you know, that the really harsh Mongolian winters are um a difficult thing for any animal, let alone human, to make it through. So the Mongolians really prized their horses in having spirit. So like a horse that doesn't buck or freak out, I think they they kind of look down on almost because they want their horses to be strong and to fight. I mean, the the country's sport is wrestling and, you know, that toughness is needed to make it through those winters. And, um, and he came up to me, he's like, you're making the horses too quiet. <laughs> and I was like, it's a great compliment in a way. Like I I would just kind of stand with them before I got on, get on and I didn't really have them buck with me. And I was really proud of that. That's what I wanted. I had a really peaceful interaction with all the horses I rode, but he was like, yeah, making them soft. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. And it was cool that he he kind of was saying as well, like, I see that you see them. Like they see you and you know, you're almost too at peace with them. It needs to be a more um, tumultuous relationship. <laughs> So that was a cool moment
1: for me. I can <laughs> to just be
2: reprimanded for not making the horses wild.
1: <laughs> I can just see Big Man saying that. So when we went to Mongolia, he picked us up at the airport. So Chloe met us there, and there's Chloe and Big Man, and um, anyway, so we ended up, you know, there's a group of us. We all get we. I happen to Tyler and I get in the car with with Big Man, and as we're pulling out of the airport, we're in the you know the Genghis Khan airport. There, we're right in the front of the building, you know, and big man is on his phone while we're pulling out of there and the the traffic policeman pulls him like he's standing there, you know, traffic cop pulls him over and, yeah. and big man rolls the window down and these two guys are arguing with each other. And the gist of it was he shouldn't have been on his phone, uh, while he was driving. Anyway, the guy wants to see big man's license. So big man gives him his license and there's this arguing back and forth and then big man basically some says something that sounds a lot like fu in mongolian and off we go and he left his license behind i'm thinking what's going on here well it turns out later on the guy found out the cop found out who big man is and delivered his license back to the hotel and apologized to him like big man is a big deal in mongolia <laughs> like a big deal in mongolia
2: yeah he is yeah <laughs> Yeah, he's cool. he's well connected.
1: <laughs> Very well connected. Um, so, like Chloe was telling us about how she got chased by wild dogs and they almost pulled a horse down, and she evaded them by going through some boggy marshes. Did you have any of those really crazy moments on the Mongol Derby?
2: all those experiences, um, bogs, which are also a huge part of the Gaucho Derby as well. It turns out <laughs> part of having beautiful remote horse races is being swallowed by bogs on horseback. Um, but my experience was, um, and it's funny. It's funny when you, you like know in the situation that it's, it feels very life or death and you kind of like laugh it off later, but <laughs> I think it was kind of a life or death situation. My riding partner's horse, um, wanted to go back to a gur that we were passing, probably his home, or if he knew he'd get to stop there. So he veered off. And um, and of course, if you go close to the gurs, the dogs are very protective and they ran out and they were jumping up, grabbing his stirrup because the horses aren't super tall either. So they were grabbing the stirrup, pulling on that. And then one dog jumped up and bit his horse's nose as well. So they were actually vicious and not, they aren't, always vicious, but in this case they were. And Adam was panicking and he let his horse come to a complete stop because of course when that dog jumped up and bit its nose it it came to a halt. And so then the horse was panicking. You could tell it was going to start bucking or act up. So I galloped up and I had my you have um brains and then a lead rein as well. And I was like screaming and yelling and hitting the dogs, like trying to hit the dogs, but you're kind of at an odd angle for that. So I got the dog's attention. And then they turned towards me and my horse and I was like, okay, now I have to get away and get away. They're chasing me. And I was like screaming, run, 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 go, go, go. And um, we took off and got out, got out of there. But I remember it feeling like I was jump, jumping in front of a bullet at the time. <laughs> Like putting putting myself in that situation, um, but it was. And then afterwards, you feel so lucky and happy to be alive. <laughs> so it's cool. Um, we were we were worried what those dogs might do, and I mean, it could have been serious, probably. Oh well, no.
1: <laughs> those those Mongolian herders' dogs, they are pretty. They're a substantial dog. They're not. No joke. Yeah, they're they're a pretty big apex predator-looking type dog.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they really are. They. I was just recently, funny enough, the only movie I had downloaded on my phone while I was in um, Patagonia was The Hunger Games, and it, they remind me of those dogs they release at the end. Um, and also, we have lots of jokes as crew about The Hunger Games being, you know, sort of accurate. You're creating a world in which people are competing in dire circumstances, so <laughs> The Hunger Games is a bit of a joke amongst uh, Gaucho and Mongol Derby crew. <laughs>
1: Wow. So tell us, I, I, we skipped over it before, but tell us about the the um, experience of the, you know, that gaucho derby, the first one that you went on where, you know, you've been wet for a few days and then it turns into snow. So now imagine you're wearing wet clothing and there's 60, mile, 60 to 100 mile an hour wind. And how is that? that? I mean, that sounds like it's a pretty scary situation. Yeah,
2: that was... Um... Very intense. I really dislike being cold. It's my my Achilles heel for sure. And also my husband. So we we actually went into the race talking to each other about how we couldn't talk about being cold because we get into a space where we just bounce off of each other. So we were like, we have to reframe it and get into a different headspace. And um, sure enough, this is more, we were tested more than we expected. Um But again, it was one of those situations where we had other people with us and it made it so much easier when you, when you feel the need to look after other people, um, it makes it much easier to look after yourself or not focus on yourself being, um, or the suffering that you're going through. Um, we had, uh, kind of grouped up with a couple people and, uh, one of them was really poorly dressed and um the other was not really sure about navigation. So Dylan and I felt at that point like uh we kind of kind of took charge of the situation, whether we were really qualified to do that or not, I don't know. But uh we helped everyone tack up and get ready. We realized we had to keep moving forward because the valley that we were in. Um well actually let me restart this a little bit. We had ridden in at night when it was raining and everyone set up their tents in the rain quickly. It was super windy, cold, horrible conditions. Um, it was not snowing yet. We, we actually opted to leave all our tack on the horses because we felt it was cold and we wanted them to be warmer. Um, and we put little lights on them so we could see where they were at night. And we checked on them a couple of times. And at 2 a.m. when I checked on the horses, it, um, I looked out and there was like two inches of snow. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> this is not good. And, um, I, I knew it was not good. Cause one of the, one of the girls that was with us was sleeping in a bivy sack. So like not even a, really a, a full tent. Um, I think she had a full tent with her, but i had gone with the easy fast thing, um, under stress and under high winds. And, um, they didn't have their pack on their horses anymore. And it was, the temperature was dropping. So by the time it was, Time that we could move the horses in the morning. Um, tacking up was insanely difficult. If you've ever tried to tack up when it's wet and cold and you lose all feeling in your hands and you can't, you're trying to do fine motor skills. Uh, that took a long time. So our horses were tacked, but we helped them tack, helped them get ready. Um, realized we needed to move to stay warm. Um, we we were in kind of a riverbed. And we got up out of there and the wind just hit us. Um, th- and we had to get out of the riverbed to go forward. And the wind just hit us and it was glacial when you could actually see a glacier in the mountains, this really bright blue, gorgeous glacier. Um, but the winds were howling down from there. And I just, it was wild. It was just, you could barely breathe uh, when the wind was hitting you in the face. And we were trying to navigate on top of that. So trying to ask your horse, to go forward in this, these conditions, this is a horse that you've just met. Um, They shouldn't trust you at all. And they've got these horses live out and they live out in that they're super attuned to their environment. Um, So you're trying to take into account what they're telling you. You're also trying to tell them that you, they want to turn their tails to the wind and park it, but you're trying to ask them to do something for you in that situation so that you also survive. And man, those horses in Patagonia, wow. Um, The space you can get to with them is in like the matter of like a couple hours is a space that I haven't found with many horses over years of owning them. Um, I think that they are, you know, when I was listening to your podcast on attunement and what that means, I was like, oh, this is the word. Um, They are so attuned to their environment and um, so in touch, so connected that if you can tap into that, they'll just do. It reminds me of the movie Avatar. Like you just connect, you just lock in. And and I was just like, look, I basically said, hey, we have to get to this place or I think we're going to die. And the horse was like, okay. Yeah. And it was like such a magical experience. So you're trying to communicate and like, I'm letting this horse know how grateful I am while I'm trying to (laughs) navigate and like breathe through all this wind and snow and um, the spot we were at was really difficult to navigate through. We found out later that we were meant to actually ride in the lake to get out, which was like, you know, not intuitive. Um, it wouldn't have been where I put my horse, especially in a snowstorm. Um, we ended up kind of wandering around trying to figure out how to get through this lake. And you we were either met by like, uh, shale drop-offs or, um, dense force that you can get through. I mean, we spent a couple of hours trying to hack through the forest. And I mean, it was great. It kept us warm and the forest was kind of shielding us from some wind. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a wild experience. Um, and was, yeah, just trying to also encourage everyone else. Uh, the one girl was telling me, she's like, I don't want to be here. I wish this wasn't happening. And I was like, you're fine. It's going to be fine. Everything will be okay. We'll laugh about this later. And she's just not doing well mentally. Um, And it was, it was a really wild experience. And in the middle, I remember looking up and there was a break in the storm. And it was just ridiculous. I just I actually laugh. Um, I was like, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna die in the most beautiful place in the world. The storm had broken and there was a freaking rainbow over the lake and a mountain in a snowstorm. And I I didn't have my phone out because it was pretty Pretty wrecked, actually, and I was like, I wish I could have filmed that, but that moment was so gorgeous, and I was just so blown away. I was like, It's a great place to die, <laughs> I guess, and I was like at peace with it, so that was kind of a cool moment, weirdly that in that moment, I was like, if I die, i died doing something really cool, and uh it's so beautiful what a what an epic way to go, so yeah, that was um, a crazy experience, and um I, I don't think I still fully reflected on all that happened because that race ran from then to February into March of 2020. And um, we got back to civilization, and everyone was like, You better get on a plane to get home because Argentina is shutting down all the airlines because of this COVID thing. So we never reflected on what happened there because our experience was not important. It was the world was was panicking (laughs) so yeah it was a pretty it was out of the fire into the frying pit i guess (laughs) it was pretty crazy um yeah so that was an interesting experience getting through the snowstorm and and of course two days later or like a day and a half later the weather cleared up it was beautiful we rode out of there and we were fine uh the helicopter uh got to get in there in time to get people back to the hospital so everybody was okay um one rider had gone as far as having renal failure from not drinking well and then getting hypothermia. So um, I think she's still dealing a little bit with the repercussions of that, but overall everyone was alive. And so that was a great outcome to that story.
1: You know, you said that one girl was at the point to where she was like, I don't want to be here. This is not happening sort of thing. And you said you, you kind of got the same way on the little canoe in, in Tanzania. What, What was it about, what was it about that, that you were like, I'm done? What, what, what was the hardship? What was, were you seasick? Were you scared because you're in the middle of the ocean in in a little twig? What, what was the, what was the, the thing causing you to do that?
2: So funny enough, when people, as I was prepping for the Kraken Cup, everyone's like, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, I get seasick. I'm afraid of the ocean and I don't like sharks. So I'm probably going to learn something about myself. And I did. I learned my limits um, and that you can always push past them. Uh, I'm a strange person in that, um, and I'll answer this in the fear question, but I don't seem to have Fear as much as I had massive amounts of anxiety, which anxiety is just telling yourself stories about the future. Um, and in in that race, in the Cracking Cup, I had a couple months of being cold, which is wild. The water is like 85 degrees or something ridiculous like bathtub water. Um, but I get cold very easily. So I remember being really cold one day and that was difficult. And then um, luckily I wasn't seasick for most of it. <laughs> um, the boat is close enough to the water and there's also no smell of any mechanics because there's no um, diesel or anything um, on the boats. So uh, I, for some reason, didn't get sick often, except for one day we were bailing out our boat because, of course, waves crash over. And part of sailing these things is constantly bailing it out so you don't sink. And I was bailing it. And you're like looking down and looking up and looking down and looking up. And I... <laughs> I turned to my friend Pete who's on the boat and I was like doesn't motion make you seasick and he was like until you said that no and then he just threw up and it, like as he started projectile vomiting we all started vomiting and it was it was funny um we were like laughing as we were seasick and I remember being like I don't know why I think two, type 2 fun is fun <laughs> Because at that moment, I was like, I don't know why I'm here, <laughs> but also I was laughing at the same time. Um, so yeah, I I, I guess um, I never really wanted to quit because I was afraid I wanted to quit because my body was felt like it was giving out a few times. I just felt I wasn't fit enough, um, which was a wild experience for me. So yeah, that was, was I guess, when I questioned things and I think from what I've talked to of other riders that have done gaucho and mongol derbies and said they've had feelings of wanting to quit, it's often the conditions where they're just really questioning their sanity as to why they wanted to put themselves through that. I'm like, that's just the joy of type two fun. No, you can survive it.
1: Yes, type two fun. So you you said that uh, when you do the uh, the mongol derby, you're with the guy that didn't finish the year before, Alan. Alan was his name, I think?
2: Adam. Yeah. Very close. Yeah.
1: Adam. So you said you trained him for the, the Mongol Derby. What, what goes into that?
2: Sure. So I can't actually take entire credit. We also trained with an amazing woman named Solange. Um, I was living in Ohio at the time and she was a fox hunter and she re-engineered my whole thinking um, about how to ride a horse. Um, I was doing a venting at the time And, and she's actually the inspiration for how I teach riders now as well. Um, I was doing eventing at the time and I had a very, um, show background of going in arenas and showing, doing reining, cow horse, doing the all around quarter horse showing. Um, so that very like straight up and down, um, heel meets your, um, your knee and everything else is like in line. And she was like. Yeah, I really think about that. Look at how rainers and I did raining at the time as well. She's like, look how rainers ride with their heels down in front of them. Look at all these old cavalry photos um, that in line only works if you're going over flat ground in an arena. Like it makes sense in an arena, but it doesn't make sense when you're out um, in the elements. And so Adam and I were training with her and she was doing a lot of the physical um, preparation with us. And she put us on some crazy horses as well, which helped. Um, And we talked a lot about the alignment of the body and being, you know, getting out of your head and into your body um, as well. And I started, I kind of, Adam and I kind of went through like, why are we doing this? What does this say about ourselves? And so I was like really obsessed with the mental fitness for both of us in doing it and pushing through. So we both started doing like lots of running and um, just mentally pushing our limits. And she did a lot of the physical work with us, um, which Uh, I'm so grateful for. She was amazing. And we still chat, uh, like, at length about crazy um, (laughs) tangents of equitation and what, like, little tiny tweaks in moving your body means for the horse. And, um, uh, yeah, she's a wonderful person to geek out about for equitation with. um, And she's wonderful. Um, So, yeah, she was helping us. But I was so intrigued by the mental aspect at the time. So uh, that would be, like, we had, like – tons of philosophical dis- discussions, Adam and myself, about what it means about someone doing the Mongol Derby and, and why we're on that path. So I guess that was like my, uh, my place in it. But to say that I was prepping him, I mean, I let him ride long distance on horses I had available to me. So we did lot, lots of intense trail riding together. But when it came to the mechanics of riding, she was the one guiding us through that. Um, but yeah, it's, we, we just trained together and we went through every scenario as a team, what that would mean. Like if something happened to me, what would he do? And, and now when I coach people, we talk a lot about that because riding as a team can be really, really interesting, you know, like someone gets a penalty. Do you sit that penalty with them or do you go on ahead? And what is that going to mean for your friendship later? So competition over friendship and, um, really having people have those difficult discussions before it's actually difficult, right? Like, um, your mind in, yeah, that something happens out there. You, you switch into uh, like a survival mode and it's maybe, I'm curious, I have like this idea that there's two parts of ourself, right? There's the ego self and maybe some higher consciousness. And um, I'm super curious in these situations because I'm not sure what's driving what, like the ego self is the survivalist, the biological programming that keeps you alive. And, and you can feel that switch on like even as crew this year in the gaucho derby i could feel that switch on like i was like um just because i'd been on enough of these races and i always starve on the races <laughs> i was very protective of food it's like really silly things that you notice and i had to like really employ my higher consciousness to be like no let's share with everyone let's make sure everyone's taken care of um but i love talking to people about letting them know that that's going to happen and being already mentally prepared having some like Constructs in place so that when you get out there, you make decisions you're going to be proud of, uh, because it's wild what happens to you when you view yourself as being in a survival situation. You can be a totally different person that you don't recognize. Um, so I I got ahead of myself and I completely lost sight of what question you just asked me.
1: <laughs> well, I was asking, you know, what what were you doing to help him prepare? So you said it was mostly mental. So so what were some of the what were some of the the mental stuff that you, you guys worked on.
2: Yeah. So, so basically that like, um, just being ready for what we would do and how we would want to behave in certain situations. Like if, if a penalty was getting served to someone, which, which happened, his horse's heart rate came in higher. He was heavier than me. So it made sense. He had a heart rate penalty, which was a two hour um, stop and, we had discussed it ahead of time. And even when it happened, he was really apologetic. He was like, if you want to ride on, you can ride on. I was like, we've trained together. If we, this was the, the idea from the get-go, I would sit with you. Um, but we also were, were ready. We were like, if we ever have a penalty, let's make use of it. Like then we sit there and we plan our navigation for the next leg. And that's exactly what we did. We used that time consciously and um, I guess a big part of the mental is um, if you buy into the idea of like your ego, which is kind of the unconscious self, um, is the, the big part of the mental is being connected to your conscious self. So doing, you know, doing the right things to get you forward, um, not being very clear here. <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of those murky areas where language fails a little bit, but um We wanted to make sure that we were always doing the best thing um, for who we wanted to be in the race. And I love doing that with clients. Like, what do you want out of this race and who do you want to be? Like, do you want to be the winner? And if, if you want to be the winner, why is that? Or do you want to be the best version of yourself through stress? And pretty much everyone wants to be the best version of themselves through stress. So um, if you really plan for what it's going to feel like and have an operating system that you can employ. Like if this happens, I want to help other people. I want to be, um, present and, and just on top of my stuff. Like we, we teach, um, a lot of safety because if you can do, if you know what to do in a, a difficult situation, you have that confidence to go through with things, then you can be that version, best version of yourself. Um, so yeah, men- the mental area is, uh, is murky as you know, it's like, <laughs> And that's what's so interesting about it. I don't think I'll ever understand it fully. Um, So by trying to teach it, I get to understand it even more.
0: If you are loving the Journey On podcast with Warwick, we know you'll benefit greatly from his online video library. Showing footage of real-time training sessions, you will learn how to approach situations with your own horse in an empathetic and effective way. The video library has been life-changing for tens of thousands of people and horses all over the world. Warwick invites you to check out the seven day free trial at videos.warwickshiller.com.
1: I know what I was going to ask you. What's Adam do? Like, like, you know, you're, you're a full on adventurer type person, but what's Adam doing there? He's, he's gone one year and, and wasn't prepared enough and got, too many rubs on his body to continue, but he comes back again next year. What, what does he do?
2: What, he ran, life, he's what actually he? retired now and he's a, just, I think he's 41 this year. Um, he had a um, startup company and um, I worked for him for a brief time there as well um, after the Derby actually. Um, but Adam now is retired and he is on, A crazy, awesome spiritual path and uh, just kind of looking for enlightenment, honestly. And uh, that's what he does full time now. And so we have amazing philosophical discussions. Uh, But at the time, he was working for his own company.
1: Wow. Wow that you got to retire at 41. But wow, the path he's on now. I bet he's so interesting to talk to.
2: So interesting. He's a really cool dude. Um, my really best friend. And that that's, I'll make the story even more complex. Actually, after the Mongol Derby, we dated for a year. And now he's my best friend and my one of my husband's best friends, which is really cool. <laughs> really cool turn of events.
1: Um, as long as you think it'll be all right with him, can you say what sort of things he's up to when he's like, like, it sounds like he's, He's retired early, so he's you know he doesn't have to worry about that. So he's got all the time in the world to, to really get in that spiritual path. What's he up to?
2: Yeah, so he went to Peru and did a month of ayahuasca. um, And I
1: I I, I figured ayahuasca was going to be the first thing. That's what that's kind of my ears pricked up. I'm like, I bet he's going somewhere to do ayahuasca.
2: Totally, and um, and you know our paths, I. I didn't, I've actually never done ayahuasca personally, and that's something I really want to go to Peru and pursue as well. Um, But we do a lot of meditation and um, like our company with horses and our animal communication, we do a lot of meditation and we actually have employed plant medicines as well. And and, uh, so we, Adam's been a great key in talking a lot about that um, for as tools of introspection. So he's doing lots of journeys like that and going places and, and kind of experimenting a little lightly with psychedelics, but it's wild that he's not a horse person technically. And he felt drawn to horses as a window into the, into the worlds in between, I guess is a good way to put it. And it's super cool um, that our paths, I our paths were also meant to cross clearly. And, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We get to have these awesome conversations about what reality is or isn't. And, uh, And somehow horses are a big key in that, which is really interesting and something I have not fully understood yet. I I think um, during the pandemic, I actually came across the book, The Tao of Equus. And it was the first time I heard somebody talking about a world I knew existed but felt crazy to believe in. And then I came across your podcast and I actually cried the first episode I listened to. And I can't even tell you who it was that I listened to, but it was I knew your name is a big trainer and I was like, oh my gosh, there I I was ready to think I was crazy for saying I could I felt this world that the horses had access to, this connection, this deep connection of what we all are. And I was I didn't I don't I didn't feel comfortable talking out loud about it because you sound a little bit nuts. And I um heard your podcast and um I think it was um the author of Sacred Spaces, actually was the podcast that I listened to. Oh, Susan
1: Fay. Susan yep. Faye. And I've actually
2: yep. spoken with her since. <laughs> um, and it was such a relief that people were talking about it in a big way and that somebody I had admired back in the day when I didn't know what I was doing with horses, which was you and um, Guy McLean and a lot of other big names. Um, and now somebody was talking out loud about, about this and it was really, really great. So I, I I'm also so grateful for the space that you create on Facebook. Like you are you actually see people. Like I see your responses and it's a wonderful space for people to communicate about horses and to connect with each other. And I'm super grateful that you have that space in the world and that you hold space for people like that. So thank you. <laughs>
1: Thank you. So you just mentioned the animal communication thing again. So tell me about that. Where did that come from? What are you doing with it? How did it develop? Have you always been able to do it? All those questions.
2: Yeah. So, um, I am insanely lucky. Like my whole life is a lot of, I think, I don't like the word privilege because there's, it's a loaded word in the culture today, but I do feel insanely privileged to have been born into this life. Um, with the parents I had, I'm an only child, so I was able to pursue horse stuff in a big way because um, we all know it costs a lot of money. And so being an only child was wonderful. Um, my parents were fantastic. They're both educators and they never told me I was crazy like, for believing in things and for they never shut down that part of me. They never pushed me into that societal norm, um, which wasn't always easy. I think during as a teenager, I struggled a bit because you know, I was being integrated into society. My parents had like fostered this like magic hippie side of me. And, um, I am so grateful that they never shut me down and they believed, they believed me because I used to come in and I had, um, as an eight-year-old, I had a two-year-old horse, um, which is, you know, the great, the wonderful thing, let, let your kid grow up with their horse and, you know, let the eight-year-old train the two-year-old horse. Um, so I guess I had, um, not only great parents, but amazing horses, um, that I think were really sent to me, uh, by the universe I had this wonderful mare named Emmy and I would come in and I would say, Hey, Emmy says this and Emmy says that. And my parents were like, what do you mean she says to you? And I was like, Oh no, I mean, like, it's a feeling I can feel it. And, um, they really encouraged that. Cause my, and I, I kind of realized I could understand what the horses were thinking, um, and the best way to explain this now, I didn't have language for it then, is I feel that you can communicate the horses through the collective consciousness. So there's your ego self and arguably, yes or no, I don't know, but the horse has its ego self. And then we have this higher self. And when I, I have to be in a very good space and generally I have to know the horse well, I'm not like extremely gifted at this, but um, you kind of connect through the collective conscious or the higher self version. So if both you and the horse are in a good space, for me, I can hear what they're thinking. Um, or if I just have known them for a long time and can easily pick up those threads and communicate. But I, I was feeling it as a youngster, as eight years old, I would come in and tell them things that, uh, they couldn't, that only the horse could know and it, they would turn out to be right. And my parents really, um, they really supported that, which was amazing. And I'm so lucky that I had them to tell me I wasn't crazy. And then society told me I was a little crazy or I felt it. I never <laughs> I felt that pressure to not believe in those things and went through life, you know, showing doing well with horses, I always did well with them, but I followed um kind of more traditional show ring style of treating horses, which um I I feel ashamed of in some cases I was trying, I had a horse and I still have a horse named Gilbert who was my big show horse, my big all around port show horse. Um, and I am so lucky he came to me. He is the most amazing being ever. Um, he would not shut down and my trainers disliked him a lot because he would not shut down. He was a Western pleasure horse when I got him. And, um, that boy got me a two star in eventing. He's an amazing horse. Um, He's fantastic. I realized he wasn't having fun in Western pleasure. So I was trying to do, I did the all around with him and I would just show him patterns and he would like do them. It was wild. He was wildly connected. It was like living with a human being. And um, he reminded me that he was a sentient being. And I'm so lucky because I was surrounded by a culture that was saying that's just a dumb horse. And um, so he was my other teacher. And um, he now gives all my beginner riding lessons and he does an amazing job. He's just the most wonderful horse. He's 24. He can still do 14 mile endurance training rides with us. So um, He's a fantastic creature. Um, And I think he's like a spiritual guide. Honestly, he's been that for me and for so many other people. Um, But yeah, he wouldn't shut down. So that really helped foster the animal communication. Uh, And I spent lots of time with him and He's a horse that can almost send me images. And um, when I listened to your podcast with Susan Faye, she was talking about images being sent to her. And I was like, yes, that's real. It's not just me that feels this and sees this. Um, so I had I had him. Um, and then um, I got introduced to some plant medicines along the way in my, my life. And I realized that opened a whole door that I realized I wasn't imagining this connection that we all have, that we're all this same beautiful conscious energy. Um, and some of my most beautiful human experiences have been with that and um, speaking with the horses, with that, with the assistance of that. Um, I think my most beautiful moment was realizing, speaking to my mare, Sparta, who's uh, anyone who knows me knows, she's like my heart horse. Um, the most beautiful experience I ever had was I, Uh, you always wonder if they love you back, you know, the way you love them. And he said, of course, we have the capacity to love because we can have babies and we're mammals and it's biological. And it wasn't her. It was like collective consciousness speaking through her, but it was a realization that horses can love us as deeply as we love them because we are all mammals that raise young. And so the love must be similar, must be parallel or adjacent. And, uh, I just saw it. I physically saw it in front of me um, in connection with her. That was such a cool experience and I feel so lucky to have had that if that was like one of the best days of my life, knowing that and feeling that. And um, actually, when she feels stressed ever, I, I I kind of had this image of like this golden ball between us, which represented like love in the experience that I had. And I can actually remember it and bring it up in my mind and i'll share it with her and she calms right down and then it's like kind of a reminder that i didn't imagine that because it works it physically works in front of me and yeah so i'm i'm a poor animal communicator I'm working on it um but yeah i'm still trying to differentiate between my own projections and what's actually real like intuition versus projection but i know i know that they know They know something bigger than we do. They're like the best Buddhists in the world. That's how they live their life, and they're, I don't know, they're magical creatures. I'm so lucky.
1: They most certainly are. So you said before you haven't done ayahuasca, but then you mentioned that you've done some plant medicine that's helped you with the uh, animal communication stuff. What have you done?
2: Um, I Actually, the the thing that I've done is um, mushrooms, which are, yeah, and that's why I also live here in Oregon now where it's decriminalized. <laughs> that's, I think, the way forward. You can see it. There's actually a lot of companies moving towards this now. Um, but, yeah, it's a pretty amazing tool if you use it for the right reasons.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to the day that we can have uh, mushroom-assisted therapy. I, I I think that would be – you know – I forget where I saw it, but it was an interview with a couple and they did, um, MDMA assisted couples therapy. And so they do the MDMA and then the therapist is there and they might have one go in another room and the therapist talks with the one. And then the other one comes in and the therapist talks with them. Then they get them together. And this, this couple said that they'd been doing couples therapy for 10 years and they got more out of one MDMA assisted couples therapy because it takes the walls down it, it you know the all the protection that you put up around you all those barriers you put up around you that that therapists can't necessarily get into or you can't get into with your your partner in the room with the ther- you know like you just can't let go of some of that stuff all those walls came down and I said it was just amazing and I am I you know there's over in Oakland, California, there they I think it's I think it's MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um they are doing you have to get into a trial to do it, but from what I've read the 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 results have been amazing from from um mushroom assisted uh therapy.
2: Yeah, there's um psychedelics are a wonderful way to break down the ego self I think and um then it just makes communication to anyone right like this isn't horses as you've said I think now your opener for the show is connecting not just to horses but to everyone and that's I think the beauty of it you you learn how to be a better person for horses you're a better person for everybody and I also say to people when you communicate with horses um Just like the people that other people want to be around are the kind of people that animals want to be around. Um, So the psychedelics breaking down that ego barrier um, can really show people how because you don't need psychedelics. It's just kind of a great it's like taking the rocket ship to the top of the mountain. (laughs) Like it's the it's the quick way. Um, but you can meditate there. You can do like running let, lots of flow state activities to get there. Anything that breaks down your ego and kind of reveals your true self, um, that version of you, that best self version of yourself, um, is the kind of, or the, the being that you need to be to communicate with an animal, I think. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a wonderful tool to use, uh, to understand where you need to be or where, where your end goal might be as a human, um.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading about uh Ram Dass, you know, he did a lot of LSD. Yeah. And he said, then at some point in time I realized that the point is not to do the 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 point is to get to where you don't need to do the LSD. The LSD makes you aware of what's possible. And then after you've been shown what's possible, then you have to figure out how to attain that possibility on your own.
2: Totally true. And I think um that's like sort of where I feel that I'm at. Uh, I'll say I've done about 40 or 50 major four gram or more mushroom trips in my life, which is a lot. And and I've seen, I've seen some things and uh, now I'm really on a path. uh, It was really great. And I went to go crew for the gaucho derby. I was able to attain like a meditation mind state. Totally on my own. Um, I've seen the end goal a lot that now um, I'm able to achieve it. And I don't know if this will last. (laughs) This is like, I I can't even take credit for the mind state I was in while running, helping run that race. Um, But I just felt in a great, peaceful state, um, even when things were very stressful and chaotic. And I felt really lucky um, to have had the life I've had, um, because I was able to get there without anything. And that was wonderful too. So I had some really great experiences. Um, so that's exactly true what Ramdas is saying. Um, and yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about these things because I think they need to start being talked about because they're wonderful tools to being a better human.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting since, you know, since the, um, the COVID thing and you know, all these podcasts have started up and whatever. I was listening to a podcast you ever heard of a guy named Aubrey Marcus?
2: I have not, no. I
1: was listening to a podcast of his yesterday and he he uh is one of the the first people that really came out about public about psychedelics and I was listening to um a podcast with him yesterday about one of his ayahuasca journeys and and uh you know what what came out of it and, oh, it was just, it was pretty amazing. But the, the whole point of what I'm getting at here is, yeah, this stuff is, is, uh, you know, a bit more mainstream these days. And it was funny, the guy that, um, Aubrey Marcus was talking to at one point in time, they said something about, <clears throat> you know, why plant medicines illegal because the big companies can't. Make money. The, the big <laughs> companies can't control it. Yeah. A- and. And it promotes it promotes uh, you know, free thinking that the, the government doesn't necessarily want you to to uh think that way either. So
2: Yeah, it's I mean it's it helps people. I I almost feel like I, I enjoy a margarita now and then, but I feel no use for alcohol anymore. And um yeah, it just gets you there's a lot of great changes that have come because I've been Lucky enough to be able to try psychedelics in in the right settings, which has been great. But mostly, it's been a wonderful spiritual path with horses and understanding them and all sentient beings.
1: Yeah, I think it all ties in together—the horses and the, you know, the psychedelics—and and and, and I'm glad I'm glad you said taken in the right settings. I think you've got to, you know, you can get yourself into some trouble. You know, people talk about having bad trips or whatever. I think people have bad trips for, because they're doing it for the wrong reason. They're doing it recreationally and they they don't have a set an intention and, you know, or they're, or they're worried about having a bad trip or whatever, but, but uh, yeah, I'm, I do think that the things are getting less and less, uh, more like it's decriminalized in, in, um, in Oregon where you are. But I, I, I think, the world is slowly heading that way to where, at some point in time, it's not only is it going to be legal, but it's going to be, like I said, you know, you might be able to have psychedelic-assisted therapy, which I think would be an absolutely great thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, they definitely are doing it, um, like you said, with maps and everything else. And um, the minute we can do that, that's what we will be doing with horses for people, because it is an amazing an amazing tool to combine the two. Horses are great guides.
1: You know, it's funny you're talking about the, the whole serendipitous thing on the, you know, several serendipitous things before. But recently there's a, I was on a podcast of a lady oh, a couple of years ago and she was doing a, Oh I forget what exactly the point of a podcast was but it wasn't a horsey podcast it had to do with personal growth and all that sort of stuff and I was on her podcast and he probably I don't know 6 months ago maybe eight maybe 8 months ago she messaged me she said hey there's these couple of other guys I think you should should get on a Zoom call with she didn't say why or anything so I got on a Zoom call with these three other guys and the one of them especially is very much into psychedelics as a, you know, as a healing modality. And, uh, so I got in there and I'm talking about, Hey, where, well, where could you, where could I, uh, get, uh, mushroom assisted therapy, you know? And they said, Oh, well, you'd have to talk to MAPS. And I'm like, MAPS, who's MAPS? And they said, Oh, it's the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. So I'd never heard of MAPS before. Here I am, I'm 53 years old, never heard of MAPS before. And about a week later, I go to a Mark Rashid, Jim Masterson clinic. So they've both been on the podcast mm-hmm. and I go to watch. It's about three hours south of here. So I go down to watch and I'm sitting there the first day watching and this lady walks by and she says, hey, are you all right, Shaw? And I'm like, yeah, she goes, oh, I just got to tell you, I love your podcast. I've listened to your podcast on the way here this morning. I'm like, okay, thanks. So come lunchtime, people just stand around and I saw that lady and I walked up, I started chatting with her and and chatting away and I said, what do you do? And she says, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. We've just moved up to this area from LA. My husband's a psychiatrist too. And I said, oh yeah, what do you specialize in? She goes, well, you know, basically family practice or whatever. She said, but I've spent the last 15 years working for MAPS.
2: (laughs) Oh wow. Cool.
1: (laughs) I'm like, like a week before I'd never heard of MAPS and here I am. I go to this Mark Rash at Jim Masterson Clinic and she walked up to me and said, I love your podcast. And so then we get chatting. Yeah. And so, yeah, she, she told me a little bit more about it. I, you know, you've got to get into a study to, to actually have that happen. But, but I do think it's the way of the future that, 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 the, the mental health therapy of the future.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every, everything's in your head, right. And if we can, sort that out just a little bit. What an amazing gift.
1: Yeah. Have you, have you, um, have you heard Mike Tyson these days?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love Joe Rogan and he also talks pretty liberally about psychedelics, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty insane. Pretty cool.
1: Pretty insane. Yeah. So why don't I, um why don't I get to your questions and you've probably answered most of them, but we'll go through them one at a time uh, and see exactly what you get to say. So the first one, I'm, I'm I'm excited about this. If you could spread a message throughout the world, what would it be?
2: Sure. So um, all my answers are not exact answers to these questions, but they're loosely <laughs> relevant. Um, I I think my message would be. Um, Something that I'm trying to do every day, and I feel like the world would be a better place, and I know I'm a better person for doing this. But I try to repeat these four things to myself pretty much all the time. But when I wake up in the morning, and it's one, how can I be more loving? I try to remember that in all situations. Um, two, how can I be kinder, which is related to the first. And um, three, I remind myself that I live in a and in, in a abundant and limitless universe and for everything is happening exactly as it should um so and with three that abundant and limitless universe i've found um uh, just really trusting that you know like having that idea of um oh gosh sorry <laughs> this will have to be edited out i lost my train here but um the limitless abundant and limitless universe uh idea is something that's really interesting to me. I feel like you know that ego switches on in survival modes um and in survival mode is um related to thinking that there's not enough resources or not enough of something, not enough love, not enough this that things are mutually exclusive, like if this person has success, then I can't have success and um. Joe Rogan calls it feminist thinking, which I love using that word or that terminology. It's really true. Like feminist thinking is not beneficial. In fact, we create the world we believe in. So if you believe there's enough of everything for everyone, it really happens. And I've been trying to embody that. And it's wild. Like I I don't, I have a strange relationship with money. I don't understand it and I'm not good with it. But um, I know I need it, unfortunately, for the society we live in and and um, I'll, I'll kind of be stressing about money, like, how am I going to buy alfalfa this month or something? And immediately my Venmo account pings and someone signed up for a boot camp. And I realize that's the universe just letting me know that everything will happen exactly as it should and that it's taking care of me and that I'm doing the right thing because I, I always have enough for what I want to do, which is amazing. And it's a wonderful feeling. And I think a lot of people could embrace that. Like, if you really believe it, it happens. So that abundance, that abundance thinking is really useful.
1: It sure is. Um, you mentioned something in there. You said everything, is everything everything's happening the way it's supposed to. Have you ever heard of Peter Krohn?
2: Yes, I have, but I don't know. I know the name, but I'm not sure the association you're going to make.
1: Oh, well, he's, he's all up. He's all about that. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. you everything that's happened to you up to this point in time, was supposed to happen to you, that sort of thing, but yeah, I love Peter crone he's a he's a he doesn't have a lot of stuff out there he, like he doesn't have a podcast, he's been on several podcasts, but if you get to listen to a podcast with Peter Crone, the guy's fascinating
2: yeah i would I would love that because, yeah, I have <clears throat> this understanding that I feel like I believe in. Um, you know Sam Harris, do you listen to Sam Harris?
1: No, let me write that down. okay.
2: He's got a meditation app that works for a lot of people as well. Um, and he interviews, he's kind of known as the guy who um, forefronted atheism. So I don't entirely agree with all of his ask, or his um, takes on things, but he's a very intelligent man. And um, he believes in, he has a good argument for predeterminism. Um, not fatalism, but predeterminism, and I actually sort of agree with that, but I also agree that we need to act as though we have free will, and that's a whole other philosophical discussion that would be like for Adam, maybe. <laughs>
1: Sounds like we could go on forever with this. Okay, um, something you mentioned right then we might as well talk about now. you said, you know your venmo will ping and someone signed up for a boot camp. Tell us about your boot camp. What is it?
2: Yeah, so what we do, um, we help train people for the gaucho and mongol derbies. Um, We do boot camp weekends, which are three-day weekends. Um, We also do week-long camps, but the the, uh, beginning model of our business was three-day weekends. People fly in on a Thursday night, fly out on a Sunday night, um, three days of intensive riding at least 20 miles um, a day or so. Um, one of those days being all based on understanding navigation with the Garmin 64 that you use on both the gaucho and Mongol derbies. Um, but often riders signing up for the gaucho or Mongol derby aren't necessarily, um, endurance riders or haven't ridden a super long distance or had to be out in the elements or even gotten to canter and trot on a horse for hours on end. I mean, the wild thing about endurance horses is that it's wild to understand that a horse can basically hold a working trot for 19 plus hours that is wild it's wild like I'm an ultra runner and it blows my mind and and by the way I kind of lied there I say I'm an ultra runner I'm about to do my first ultra so I identify as one without actually having the credentials (laughs) um,
1: you're about to do your first ultra so that's uh, 50 or
2: 100 uh, just doing a 50k so it's about 32 miles 32 35 miles so but I feel like I should understand it from um from the horse's side now, right? I should go run myself if I'm gonna make my horses run distance.
1: I love your out, uh, your outlook on it. I'm an ultra runner. I haven't done it yet, but I I feel like I
2: am <laughs> I identify as one. It sounds nice. It sounds like I'm hardcore.
1: Oh, you are hardcore, don't worry. Okay, so speaking of hardcore, the next question is what's an unusual habit? you have or something out of the ordinary you do
2: so it ties in perfectly and it's not unusual like I said these are almost relevant answers um, running and I'm saying that it's um unusual because I don't I'm not very good at it I would say and I'm aware of that and again it's also what story what narrative do you tell yourself so uh, I could say I'm good at it but Um, I wouldn't say I was an actually gifted runner. We'll put it that way. And I find it very difficult. I have um, sports induced asthma, which anyone who's run with me is very aware of. I breathe very heavily when I run. But it's also also awesome because it's so difficult that um, it's like immediately type two fun and immediately makes my body work really hard. And I just think there's nothing as amazing as running for getting fit both for being a better rider and for getting out of your head and into your body so part of my boot camp weekends which um i started explaining involve a little bit of running i often do hill sprints because hills are low impact you're going up so you hit the ground sooner than you would if you're on the flat and it's a great way to get winded really fast and it's very um very good cost benefit ratio on time. Like if you only have 10 minutes, run hills for 10 minutes, you'll have done a really good workout. So I like to get riders um, working out with me. Uh, we do that before we ride every day. We do um, a run up hills. We do some balance board work. We do a meditation with the horses and then we ride. Um, and I'm trying to instill, I get like this wonderful opportunity to be a part of people's spiritual journeys to these races and I really just like to insert my own <laughs> take on it and tell people like let's be really fit so that you can have more fun I mean the fitter you are the easier everything is right so being fit for these races I feel is important because you're just going to enjoy yourself that much more and if you're spending 14 and a half thousand dollars I think you should enjoy it so um being fit's a huge part of it and p- huge part of the boot camps they do um And then I feel like I need to live by my own ethos. So yeah, running is the unusual thing I do to torture myself, um, to, to be more in touch with what riders are going through, to be more in touch with mental exertion and physical exertion. And, um, yeah, just to, just to live what I say, be fit and, uh, make things difficult now and then be com get comfortable with being uncomfortable.
1: Do you remember, uh, Ben Atkinson's quote about running on on his podcast. I love that. If you want to talk to yourself, run a mile. If you want to talk to God, run a marathon.
2: Yes, I love that. I totally agree. And it it is, you get into a flow state where you just, you know, that ego is fully dissolved. Like for me, who's not an amazing runner, probably my ego is dissolved by mile five, (laughs) Um, probably for most people by 10. Um, And so if you, you get exhausted, you're again in a much better place and um, for our boot camps even if they're not focused on mongol or goucher derby uh, using fitness as or using exercise as a tool to break down the ego to communicate with the horse is huge
1: wow that's very cool so what do you feel your true purpose is in the world
2: um exactly what i'm doing and how freaking cool is that i'm so so lucky to um be doing this and to be doing this with my husband as well um we both feel the same and do the same thing and um I just I feel like very very honored to be a part of people's journeys and to to be doing exactly what I'm doing which is helping people and horses do uncomfortable things comfortably (laughs)
1: Okay, next question. This You may have already covered this one too, but what's the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you?
2: Um, so that's easy, which is, you know, predictably my husband. That was pretty cool. Pretty cool turn of events. Um, uh, he was uh, – we. I kind of started on this story and didn't finish it saying, like, my parents uh, fostered this belief in me and then Gilbert really helped me, Gilbert the horse that I owned all, 19 years of my life now. Um, has been a huge part of who I am, but, uh, Dylan meeting Dylan, my husband was amazing. It was, uh, the reentry back into the spiritual side of things, uh, meeting him, he, he could see what I was doing with horses and he, he had a friend, um, named Anna and I'm going to butcher her last name, but she's a very big a- animal communicator, Anna Brettenbach. And, um, have you heard of her by chance? Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay.
2: So he That's went, probably how I'd
1: pronounce it too, but I think I'm doing it wrong as well.
2: Uh, maybe, I, maybe I got lucky and said it right. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, he actually got to go swimming with whale sharks with her. Um, he was like personally very close to her. And um, he saw me with horses and said, hey, you have something really special here. And um, he he totally believed in me and made me believe in myself again. And that's really special to have that kind of support. Like he... He lets me be who I am, which is a little bit this crazy horse person and supports it fully. And I'm just like so fully seen by him. Um, wow. Like so lucky. Um, so fully seen by him and the herd of horses that we have. Uh, so they like our children. We've chosen not to have kids just to have horses and to, you know, occasionally foster adults doing the derbies. <laughs> They're part of our family, too. Um, but yeah, I feel so incredibly seen by our clients which are our friends our horses and by him so that's the luckiest thing my life is the luckiest thing to happen to me
1: so cool and uh another of the questions you chose was do you have a favorite horse i imagine that's gilbert
2: (laughs) uh yeah it's a funny question because i was was like i didn't even i wrote notes on these questions and i was like i didn't really have an answer to that like all my horses have been uh big spiritual guides uh gilbert yeah He's got to be because he's been 19 years of my life and seen me through. I think he's been waiting for this version of me. And, you know, like I'm sort of able to hold the best version of myself by going in and out of it. But I I feel like he's just been so patient. He's like, I I see horses as very Taoist, Buddhist creatures. And finally, I'm like, oh, Buddhism kind of feels like, you know, like a really good worldview. And it really feels like what horses embody and it's kind of like Gilbert's been standing waiting for me at the end of the road and I'm finally starting to catch up and what a patient animal. And that's pretty cool. So I really, yeah, he's pretty special. And I I have a wonderful mare that's done the Tavis Cup, the 100 mile endurance race um, three times. Uh, She's a a magical horse. I'm also blessed to have her. So, um, and I'd have to mention them both. They're, they're the power couple of our herd and they're
1: amazing and I'm so lucky to live with them. You know, it's cool about the, it's cool with those horses that you've had for a long time because as you evol- I don't know, I feel like as you evolve, they they don't evolve along with you, but I think they give you more of themselves. They open up more of themselves to you because, you know, they will be they will be whatever you want them to be. And so if you just they If you just want them to be well-trained and obedient, they'll do that. But then as you change, as you go along that, you know, I'm, I'm, I see it with my horse Bundy, you know, I've had Bundy for, I guess, nine years now. Um, yeah, I I see it with him, but then like the the younger horses I've got that have only known (laughs) the new me, (laughs) uh, they're totally different creatures than Bundy, but. I realize now there's a lot of the old me in Bundy and he would be a totally different creature if I had been a totally different creature. So, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. That.
2: It is, right? Yeah, they really, yeah. Gilbert's got some old holds back to like 16-year-old me. <laughs> so, poor guy. Um, but, yeah, they're they're pretty cool. And, you know, it's something I've found in horse training, which is really I don't yeah I guess horse training you'll call we'll call it that um when I'm starting horses and I want them to be brave or be something I imagine that I'm riding either Gilbert or Sparta and they you hold that space for them and they just fall into it so if I'm riding a spooky horse I think of Sparta who's incredibly brave like never spooks at anything out on trail and um, I'll hold that space like I imagine I'm riding Sparta and suddenly they become that. And I realize it's me. I'm holding my body in a different way because I'm not expecting something. And it's that's a wonderful hack. That's something I teach too. So if you're nervous with a horse, imagine you're on a safe horse and know what that feels like and embody that. And that's such a cool gift.
1: You know, I think that's really hard for a lot of people to get their head around. Um, you know, they want They want you to fix the horse and, you know, it's hard for them to get their head around that, that, that you're, you know, I talked about this a lot, but your energy and your perceptions and your judgments and your, your everything projects onto the horse and they, yeah, they respond a lot to that.
2: Yeah. They're mirrors. They're such mirrors.
1: Uh, Okay. And the last question, the best question, (laughs) what is your relationship like with fear?
2: Of course. Yeah. So in my line of work is what I think about a lot because people are facing a lot of their fears going into the gaucho Mongol derbies. And then I work with a lot of people that just have fear with horses. Um, so I have a weird thing. And when I really looked at this question, I, in situations that are, you know, like feel life or death that I've been on in, in these races, um, in situations where I should be afraid. I find that I'm not, I find a lot of clarity and I don't think that's rare. I think this happens to a lot of people, Um, but it's just so clear what I need to do. And it's, it's, you're insanely present, right? Um, In dangerous situations and it's it's almost like peaceful in a weird way. Um, It's the flow state. Yeah, the flow state. Uh, So I can't even say that there's often times that I feel fear because what I'm actually experiencing is anxiety. Um, in every day and I and I've had bouts I, I was an anxious person I have been an anxious person I've identified as an anxious person in my life and that's all just making guesses about the future um and which isn't helpful especially around horses you're like oh you could do this you could do that well then the horse is expecting thinking that maybe you're telling them to do those this or that um So practicing presence with fear, um, and here it's really anxiety, right? Um, So practicing presence with anxiety is really important, and something I'm trying to get better at communicating to other riders. But using those tricks, like um, imagining that you're with or you're on or with another horse that you really fully trust, is um, is great. And using meditation as a tool to center yourself and get out of your head, which is producing this anxiety. And into your body which is feeling the the connectedness to the horse feeling what's actually going on um, so using your senses of what's actually currently around you rather than your mind which is running five miles ahead uh, yeah really relationship with fear is something i'm studying and trying to understand better and better um there's another tool i use and everyone knows about this that's trained with me and i call it past self and future self which is um when the moment that you're in is really difficult, and this is maybe the opposite of being present, so it's kind of curious. Um, but when the moment that you're in is super difficult or super stressful, um, especially like while you're racing, so say you're doing the Mongol or Gaucha Derby, I always tell them to think about the past self, which is the self that's training with me or training, getting ready, do all the work, all the time, all the money, all the effort. Think of the past self that's worked so hard to get you to that moment. And and how you wouldn't want to fail that past self in that moment um, by your actions and then think to future you. How is future you going to look back at how you're acting right now? And usually if you do that, if you have that conversation with past you and future you, you can come to a really good conclusion about what you should do in the present moment. And I think that's like a wonderful tool to deal with stress or fear or um, just when you don't want to be there, like when you're running on mile 10 or when you're when you're out there in the pouring rain and you're navigating poorly on a really difficult to ride horse. I think that's the moment that you just say, you know what, this is fleeting. I should be here. I should make the right decision for past me. You'd Put in all the work and for future me, who's going to look back and either be proud or ashamed of what I'm about to do.
1: <laughs> that was that was awesome. Um- You know, a lot of what you are talking about there, and you might not even know this, have you ever read a book called Dopamine Nation?
2: No, but I heard you talk about it. And there was, you said some quote from it that I wrote down somewhere and I was like, I have to get this book, which is, you know, my reading list is long and it needs to be. Well,
1: well, A lot of, one of the big takeaways I got from that book was that, that, you know, you have you have a set level of dopamine, and then you have spikes in dopamine. You do something that causes a lot of dopamine, you get that, but then it comes back down to your set level, and your set level is caused. Well, what, you know, if you have too much dopamine, which means you're like phones these days, we're on these damn phones and you get these pings and bings and all that sort of stuff. That's a lot of dopamine all the time. Well, when you do that, your set level is much lower. And the thing mm. that brings your set level of dopamine up is doing things that are hard, that are painful, that are stressful, that are tough. Like all this stuff you're talking about, riding the difficult horse in the rain with the navigation and, you know, it sounds type like. Type two fun. Type two fun. Yes. Type two fun. That's a, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Just, just, if you want to raise your dopamine level, have type two fun.
2: Or maybe we have a joke now about type three fun, where it's not fun while you're doing it. It's not fun when you look back
1: on it. Oh, yeah. That's type. Yeah. If people listening don't know what type one, type two and type three fun is type one fun is you're doing something and it's fun. And later on, you look back at it and it's fun. Type two fun is when you're doing it, it sucks. And when you look back on it, it's like, yeah, that was fun. And then type three fun is it sucks while you're doing it. And later on, when you look back on it, it still sucks.
2: Yeah. So do more type two and type three. Get more. I mean, I think it's so difficult to be an adult, to be a human in this world that the better you are at suffering, so the better you are at being comfortable with being uncomfortable in all aspects, the easier life becomes, the more peaceful life becomes. So, you know, put yourself in those situations, (laughs) right? That's the paradox. We have have all these paradoxes.
1: Yeah, we have all this stuff these days that we've got to make our lives easier. We've got electricity and we've got thermal clothing and we've got phones that bing and make our dopamine receptors go off. And all that stuff that's supposed to make us feel better is what makes us feel worse. We've got to rewild ourselves.
2: You know, my husband and I were in a weird living situation where we were building a house, but it didn't pan out, so we ended up living in a travel trailer that wasn't connected to the grid in any way. So we had no running water, no electricity for about two and a half years in this travel trailer, and it was difficult, but I loved it. And it was actually type one fun for part of it. I think it was type two fun for my my husband when we talk about it, but um, maybe even type three for him to be honest at times. Um, but it was such a, it's such a practice in gratitude. I was so grateful when I would have running water. And I, I still remember that when I have running water in the house of it now. Um, but yeah, it's like living, living in that space of, um, of less is actually more. And uh, it was such a wonderful experience. And I totally, totally agree with that.
1: Okay. So, you know, we're going to wrap this up here in a minute, but there's something I want you stevie to think about but uh, the, the big thing i want people at home to think about because this as you've talked here today like i knew you were going to be amazing but you were even more amazing than oh, i thought you, you were going to be so lucky <laughs> and you were one of those people that when i contacted to ask you to be on the podcast you're kind of like oh me like like um i think emily newman when I contacted her about being on the podcast, I was like, oh, do you do you think people want to hear anything I've got to say?
2: <laughs> She's so and, wonderful. And there's been,
1: there's been several other people that are like, you're amazing. And you're like, oh, would anybody want to hear what I've got to say? And you you were like that when I contacted you. So I just want people at home, I mean, I want to tell you, I thought you were amazing, but people at home who think you're not special or you You know, you're not offering the world a lot. You, you, you are offering the world a whole lot more than you ever th- thought you could. And I did a podcast the other day, actually, with an Australian guy who, um, by the time this one comes out, it will have come out. So I can say what his name is. His name is Jeff Jowett. And Jeff was a big time fitness influencer in Australia, was the biggest fitness influencer in Australia, had infomercials on the TV Was you know, at age of 35, had a $40 million company. And at the age of 40, he was broke, lost a lot. And so now he's on like round two of life. But he said a quote the other day, I've got to frit my pad here. He said, no one's as good as they look from the outside. You know, no one's life's as good as they look from the outside, but everyone is much better than they think they are. Oh,
2: that's so good. That's so true.
1: But you, you've your stories are amazing I know I could talk to you for I mean I met when I met you you and Dylan last year at the Horse Expo, I thought there's something about those kids that there's a there's a vibe about those kids. It's very, very cool. But after talking to you, it's like, oh, like we could talk for days. Especially if you drug Adam in on the conversation. But
2: <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure sure he he'd love to go philosophical. <laughs>
1: I bet. So thank you so much for joining me. So how do people contact you? If anybody wants to do, say, a, a boot camp or anything like that, how do they how do they get a hold of you guys?
2: Sure. So the wonderful world of social media. Um, I guess the best way is find me on Facebook, Stevie Delhunt, or um on Instagram is probably the best way as well. Um I'm at adventurous Barbie. So and there's lots of pictures of horses. So it's clear. <laughs> adventurous it's Barbie.
1: I told you before. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. Um, yep, so, so, yep.
1: <laughs> and bef- before you go, you are just back from the Gaucho Derby, aren't you?
2: Yeah, just back. and Yeah, just back and moved as well, just from California to Oregon. So um, our horses have a home. We're homeless currently. So also, you can contact me if you have a place in Bend, Oregon you want to rent.
1: <laughs> yeah, if anybody in Bend, Oregon is looking for some lovely people to rent to, get a hold of Stevie. Well, Perfect. Stevie, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm, I'm so glad you had the had the time to join us because it was fascinating.
2: Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's like a dream come true. You're definitely one of my idols because of the space you hold in the world for horses and people. So thank you.
1: Ah, thank you so much for saying that. So yeah, it's been awesome. You guys at home, I'm glad. I'm glad you joined us, and I'm sure you enjoyed uh, listening to Stevie as much as I did. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next episode of The Journey On Podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to The Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.